And now while you remain standing, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. The Gospel of Mark chapter 2, reading verses 18 through 22. Let us hear the word of God. Mark 2, 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So far, let's ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your scriptures and for this particular passage in Mark chapter 2. Oh Lord, speak to us. Pray that your word may be faithfully proclaimed here from this pulpit this morning. Give us ears to hear. May that word penetrate our hearts and our souls. And may we see Jesus. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm continuing uh, preaching through the Gospel of Mark, Uh, we're here at Mark 2, verse 18, where we find here a a third controversy of a series of five uh, between Jesus and the spiritual elite, or the religious elite uh, of his day. Uh, There's escalating intensity uh, against Jesus and against the ministry of Jesus. Uh, The first instance where we saw this conflict was when Jesus healed the paralytic. And uh, in uh, in, in that event, Jesus said, not only rise up and walk, he said, your sins are forgiven. And the spiritual elite said, who can do that but God himself? And so they were bringing this uh, charge against Jesus for uh, blasphemy. And then the the second uh, that we looked at last time is the fact that Jesus was eating and drinking. He was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And uh, for the Pharisees and the religious elite, that was impure to do so. And like if you hang around with them, you can catch a disease. And, uh, and so that was the, uh, the second conflict, a, a point of conflict. Uh, today, uh, they're saying, why don't you fast? Like the Pharisees and like even the disciples of John. 
And so there are these challenges against Jesus, these conflicts that are arising. But remember, as I've said before, that these are but outbursts or eruptions of a greater conflict. These are microcosms of a macro conflict between God and Satan, between good and evil, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is just an eruption of that conflict that began in the Garden of Eden, where God said, I will put enmity between you to Satan, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Notice, it's a conflict that is initiated by God. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is cosmic conflict. It's kingdom versus kingdom conflict. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. Well, here we have the seed of the woman once again being challenged and being attacked. And last time we saw that Jesus said that uh, I, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, verse 17, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Uh, I love those passages in Scripture where, they, where it's so clear why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus enter this world? And there are several passages that make that clear. In 1 John, for instance, he came to destroy the works of the devil. There's that conflict. He came to take away sin. Here Jesus tells us this mission I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. I have come to call sinners. Jesus is telling us what his mission is. And he says in our passage that he is the, the bridegroom and that this bridegroom is going to be taken away. This is, this is a, a violent thing. He's going to be taken away. That, uh, and here Jesus is giving us sort of a, a picture of What's included in that mission of calling sinners to himself? What is included is he will be taken, he will be arrested, he will be put upon a tree, uh, put upon a cross, and violently put to death. That is part of his mission, and Jesus knows that, even here. But the people come to Jesus with this presented issue uh, that, uh, uh, of fasting. But again, as we saw last time, there's the presented issue, but then there's a deeper issue. There's something more going on. And Jesus then takes this opportunity to explain about his mission. Jesus is saying that his appearance has inaugurated a new 
era or epoch. And so let's look at that together, uh, verses 18 through 22. Jesus is asked about fasting, and then he, he responds using three different illustrations. The illustrations of the bridegroom and a wedding scene. The illustration of uh, clothing and, and, and sewing a patch onto clothing. And then the illustration of wine and old wineskins and new wineskins and such. So he uses these three different illustrations. And uh, like me, you might initially read this passage and say, I don't really get what the one has to do with the other. You know, what's his point? Uh, we might th- get the first one, you, you know, that, that makes sense. And it's in the first one where Jesus is answering specifically about the question of fasting. But it's in the second two, uh, particularly where he gets into the deeper issues of uh, his mission and what's going on here. So first of all, Jesus says that uh, in answer to the question, why don't your disciples fast like uh, the Pharisees and like John's disciples? Jesus says, can the wedding guests, verse 19, fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. And so Jesus is, is identifying himself and his appearance on earth as the coming of the bridegroom. And as long as he is there, that's not a time to fast. Now, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, God uh, identifies himself at times as the groom or the bridegroom of Israel. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, God is the bridegroom who is wooing his people to himself. And it says, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And Jesus here is identifying himself then as that bridegroom. He has come for his bride. And so we see here that Just the wonderful good news of the gospel that God takes the initiative to come to lost men and women and boys and girls and is graciously wooing them to himself. He calls them to come. Jesus in Matthew 11, we see just a beautiful picture of this. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the bridegroom who comes, not for the righteous, but for sinners, to call a bride to himself. And Jesus is saying, that's that's the situation in which I've come, and that's not a time for fasting. When the bridegroom is here and the wedding is taking place, that's not a time for fasting. Fasting is typically associated with mourning. And it's at the wedding, that is not that is a time of celebration. And so what is happening here? You know, in the Old Testament, God believe it or not, when we read about fasting and so forth, God established one day 
out of the year as a day of fasting. It was the day of atonement. That's it. One day, God established. Now, that doesn't mean that people couldn't fast at other times, and that doesn't mean that they would be disobedient to God for fasting at other times. In fact, we find that Jesus himself fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, so there, there's, there's a place and a time for fasting. But the point I want to make here is that God established one day of fasting for, per year. So what were John's disciples and what were the disciples of the Pharisees doing in their fasting? Well, we, we don't know that. We don't know what it is. But what Jesus is reacting to is if you're going to insist on fasting, you are adding to God's law the laws of man. And that really became the issue. Man-made expectations, man-made requirements, where the spiritual elite of Jesus' day was they were heaping on to the people's shoulders works, more works to do. That was the issue. The issue wasn't Old Covenant versus New Covenant. That's, that's not the issue. The issue wasn't Judaism versus Christianity. That, that was not the issue. The issue is a corrupted Judaism that the religious elite were, were heaping burdens onto the people Man-made rules, man-made traditions, man-made laws that were being added to the law of God. Jesus, in fact, said, I have come to fulfill the law. But God's law, not man's rules, not man's laws. So... I don't know, maybe you've seen some shows on television about people who buy old vehicles or old pieces of art or something like that, and they restore it. They clean off all the dust. You know, if it's a piece of art, they have to do it very carefully, right? And there are people who actually make a living doing that, uh, taking old paintings and such, and they have to be very careful to clean these up, and they remove the dust and the crust and all the stuff that has accumulated over it. Or in old vehicles, you got people who, you know, they'll find some old vehicle that was left outside and left unattended, and it, it looks like a mess, uh, but uh, they'll pay, you know, a low price for the vehicle. They'll bring it home, and they'll clean it up. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's amazing. Wow, look at look how, that, uh, how shiny and beautiful uh, that old jalopy is uh, after it's all cleaned up. That's what Jesus has come, is to remove the grime. And so it isn't that he's replacing 
the Old Testament law and Judaism. He's re- removing the, the, the crust and the, the, the grime that the laws of man, the dirt of the Pharisaical rules to show that the law is beautiful. That's what Jesus is doing. And he wants them to understand in this that his coming has initiated a new era. When the bridegroom is here, that's the time of celebration, not mourning. But when he is taken away, and he's referring there to his crucifixion, on that day, singular, that will be the appropriate time for fasting and mourning and sadness. But then, brothers and sisters, the resurrection will come. Then will come the resurrection. So that the primary note of the Christian faith and of a Christian life is one of joy and gladness and rejoicing, not mourning not sadness, and not weeping. But here's the point, and this will bring us then to looking at Jesus' other illustrations. It is futile to try to unite the traditions of man with the truth of God. It is You simply can't marry the traditions of man with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's futile. And so that's where where these next come in. And that's what Jesus is saying about the clothing. No one sews a new unshrunk patch of cloth onto an old garment. Because when that new unshrunk patch begins to shrink and it begins to wear, it's going to tear from the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If you do that, they're both going to be ruined. The wineskin is going to be ruined and the new wine is going to be ruined. What Jesus is saying is that the gospel of his coming, the gospel of the kingdom of God is like that new wine. Now that doesn't mean, when, he, when we say that, that doesn't mean that there was no gospel in the Old Testament. The, I want to make sure that we don't make these false or wrong assumptions about what Jesus is saying. We can say with full confidence that there is no new truth in the New Testament that is not found in the Old Testament. Now, what we do have in the New Testament is that that truth is more clear. It's more fully revealed, most certainly. It's more magnificent. But Jesus is saying that with his coming, the gospel is now being revealed in all of its glory. Before, in the Old Testament, it was in shadow. It was there. 
God dealt very graciously with his people. God took away the sins of his people, not because they deserved it, but from his free grace. But that gospel now, with the coming of Jesus into this world, is more clearly, fully, brightly seen and known. He is the bridegroom that has come to the wedding for his bride. In the Old Testament, the gospel was in shadow, but now the Son of Righteousness has come with healing on his wings. Jesus has come, and that is the new wine. It's fresh, invigorating, transformative. The gospel of the kingdom of God is not stodgy, man-made rules and traditions. It is Jesus Christ, God incarnate, fulfilling all the Old Testament promises. The gospel is that Christ came and lived and he died according to the scriptures and he rose again to redeem for himself a people, a bride, Do you believe that? Are you resting in that? Not the works of man, not the rules. It's Christ and him crucified. So Jesus is saying here that the gospel of the kingdom of God is like new wine. And that gospel is incompatible with man-made religion. Man-made religion. It would be, in other words, Jesus is saying, it would be ruinous for my disciples at this particular time to fast according to your rules. That would be ruinous. That would be undermining the, the, the glorious news of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, that has always been the conflict and always been the issue in the church and throughout the church. Peter struggled with it. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 that he had to confront Peter because Peter started doing the same thing. He was kind of uniting the gospel with pharisaical rules and requiring people and separating himself from people this way and that because he was being hypocritical. Peter was trying to marry the two, the man's ways with the gospel, straddling the fence, and Paul says, I had to confront Peter to his face. That was the issue with the Galatian church. The church, in, uh, you know, the, when you read Galatians, remember chapter 3, how it begins? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And what does Paul say then to them? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, he says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of, the fa hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, what is Paul saying there? He's saying that the Galatian church, they were being infiltrated by 
a Pharisaical or, or a Old Testament ceremonial Judaism. Laws. And we cannot marry, we cannot unite the gospel of Jesus Christ with the laws and rules of man. In John chapter 3, well-known passage, it's where we have John 3.16, of course. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. We don't know the whole story of why that is. Uh, but Nicodemus says, uh, I know that you are a teacher from God because nobody can do these things that you do except if sent by God. And Jesus comes right to the point and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. What's, what's Jesus doing there? Your problem, Nicodemus, isn't that you need a little patch. You need new life. You must be born again. You must be made new. You must be made holy by God. You need a new heart. And the point is, that is not going to happen by our keeping the rules, by our following the, 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 the uh, traditions of man. That only comes by trusting and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That gospel is new wine. It's rich. It's heady. It's vibrant. It's invigorating. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life in abundance. I have come that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What Jesus there is saying is, I have not come to restrict you, to imprison you, to oppress you or depress you. I've come to give you life. For freedom he has set us free, Paul says in Galatians. For freedom he has set us free. You know, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were not liberals. They were Bible-believing. They believed in the inerrancy of the Scriptures. Uh, they accepted the supernatural. You know, uh, liberal theologians today, they uh, deny that this is the word of God that is inerrant. They, they want to go away with anything that is supernatural, that uh, is not uh, explainable by uh, natural means. They want to remove all of that. That's not the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the scriptures. Their problem was that they were graceless. The Pharisees were graceless. They were self-righteous. And they were law-focused. And, you see, that's an issue that is true throughout the history of the church. Even in theologically, we could say, orthodox churches. 
I'll even say even in confessional churches, reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, churches that are, are faithfully, you know, to the, to the teaching of Scripture, you can still find true or two different religions. One that is grace and one that is law. One that is gospel-centered and one that is law-centered. And the problem with the Pharisees is that they were grace-less, gospel-less. They wanted rules, laws. Now, law and gospel are not opposed to one another. We, I hope, understand that. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that should be the desire of our hearts. But when the law is divorced from grace, and when the law is divorced from Jesus Christ, well, then it is a different religion altogether. And Jesus says these two cannot coexist. Such a religion is graceless, it is cheerless, it is burdensome, it is frankly incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. True religion, biblical religion, is found and fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. He is the one who says, come to me. To me. Come to me. You know, I've made this point before. Jesus doesn't say, come to the doctrine. Come to the teaching. Come to the confessions. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. God has given us his word so that we may know right doctrine, so that we may have right teaching. And our confessions, I believe, are faithful uh, summaries of what God's word teaches. So I am not here being anti-doctrine or anti-confessional. But Jesus has come to me, to person. A person. In fact, what our what the teaching does and what the doctrines do, what our confessions do, is they help explain who this person is. <laughs> they help us understand rightly who we are to come to. But we come to Jesus. Not to traditions, not to teachings, but to Jesus. That's true religion. We have the privilege of doing that now as we uh, come to the table of the Lord and to unite with our Savior and receive uh, from him these good gifts and uh, receive him, his body, and 
his blood. And so I invite you to turn with me in, uh, uh, to page four in your bulletins where I'm going to read a, a form uh, for the Lord's, for taking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, let me just say, if you, know, if you uh, are a professing uh, Christian, a, a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have, are a member, a professing member in good standing of a gospel-proclaiming, Bible-believing church, uh, then we do welcome you to join us uh, at the table. Um, if that's not the case, then we do ask that you abstain. Uh, we want to uh, guard the table of our Lord rightly and faithfully and appropriately, and uh, that this is a family meal uh, for uh, the people of God. And so uh, now would you please listen to these words of instruction. To all of you who have confessed your sins and affirmed your faith in Christ, the promise of Jesus is sure. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true, true drink. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. While remaining bread and wine, these sacred elements nevertheless become so united to the reality they signify that we do not doubt but joyfully believe that we receive in this meal nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For all who live in rebellion against God and in unbelief, this holy food and drink will bring you only further condemnation. If you do not yet confess Jesus Christ and seek to live under his gracious reign, we admonish you to abstain. But all who repent and believe are invited to this sacred meal, not because you're worthy in yourself, but because you're clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Do not allow the weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table, for it is given to us because of our weakness and because of our failures, in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As the Word has promised us God's favor, so also our Heavenly Father has added this confirmation of His unchangeable promise. And so come, believing sinners, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, who by the blood of your only begotten Son has secured for us a new and living way into the Holy of Holies, cleanse our minds and our hearts by your word and spirit, that we, your redeemed people, drawing close to you through this holy sacrament, may enjoy fellowship with the Holy Trinity through the body and blood of Christ, our Savior. We know that our ascended Savior does not live in temples made by hands, but is in heaven where he continues to intercede on our behalf. Through this sacrament, by your own word and spirit, may these com common elements now be set apart from ordinary use and consecrated by you, so that just as truly as we eat and drink these elements, by which our bodily life is sustained, so truly we receive into our souls, for our spiritual life, the true body and true blood of Christ. We receive these gifts by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. 
Amen.